So what's happening is the publishing company will hire a bunch of writers and they've bought this song from Bob Marley or Curtis Mayfield or Eric Clapton. And they're like, you know, we want more streams for this song and we want this song to be featured on more commercials. So what we need to do is for you to sample this song, reference it and put it out there in the zeitgeist, put it out there on Spotify, put it out there on Apple Music and get people to get redirected back to that song. Right. And so there's this cycle. This is called the financialization of the music industry. again with another episode of no gps the fifth one to be exact and i'm here of course my name is aaron i'm with my podcast co-host mr mez and the producer man matt in the back doing his thing what's up what's up what's up how you living so of course here at no gps the focus is on the journey not the destination and the ends don't justify the means just want to let you know that and to be upfront, yes it's me on the intro and outro music for the podcast so that cat's out the back so what's up man we're here today to talk about music and why we love music i love music <laughs> yeah shout out to hip-hop baby yeah hip-hop baby via the ogs so yeah what's up how you doing today ready to go ready to get this thing popping whatever you have in store all right all right wait we're gonna talk about the popping and locking and doing all that kind of stuff from the hip-hop to the funk to the r&b to the classical to the gospel to maybe even some publisher music i don't even know where we're gonna go with this it's no gps anyways <laughs> so yeah we, we wanted to talk a little bit about music and um just the music landscape the, the whole political economy of what it what it is right now as far as popular music is concerned and we want to we want to start at a particular point in time that really was pivotal in the sound that we have right now as far as the monotonous nature of the type of music that we hear and the lack of regional and local distinctions in the types of music and why somebody from Toronto or Oklahoma City or somewhere in Montana can sound like they're from Atlanta. And there's, there's, there's a backdrop, there's a political economy to that and uh, some would say a libidinal economy to that. Um, and it starts in 1996, I believe is the year, not 1995, 1996, when former president Bill Clinton deregulates the telecom act in the united states of america and we start there because of course the cultural soft power of the united states uh, has uh, real material and psychic effects on everybody in the world uh, and american popular music is world popular music so that's why we're starting there um and of course i'm situated in toronto canada my man mez is situated in the south end as they like to say london yeah <laughs> south end is a place outside of london entirely so uh, not oh, to be yeah. confused with that <laughs> there's a there's a place called south end like an actual town that is unimaginative <laughs> do you know why there's a sussex a wessex a uh, and an essex oh god no okay i'm seeing the logic <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know i was about to go north i don't think there's a i don't think there's a northern version of it yeah they they, they, they probably didn't want to name the north because they yeah you know 
yeah, yeah. Old, old, old wounds. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the North is for, for, for old folks, for Norfolks. Or maybe you call it Norfolk, right? Norfolk. So there's a, there's a place called Norfolk, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right, so yeah. So you know. And there's a place called Suffolk. Right, anyways, I'm going to stop. Okay. <laughs> I, I bet you have a version of this in Canada, anyways. Like every single town in yeah. England has a name for it, has a satellite. Yeah, yeah. In Canada. Yeah. We have, yeah, we have a Sussex. I'm, Sussex was like right there, University of Toronto. That was the, the street World Arts Library is on. Um, <laughs> so anyways, uh, you know where, where, where we are situated and located. Um, so we want to get to, you know, what happened with this, the deregulation of this Telecom Act, right? And what it enabled for, 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 for big media companies to be able to do in uh, the news space and the radio space and mass consolidation of a lot of different companies and, you know, a lot of mergers and, and um, amalgamations were happening, as, as they say out in Lon London, England, the financial center of uh, Europe. Uh, amalgamations, we say mergers and acquisitions. But um, so with the 1996 deregulation, deregulation of the Telecom Act, what happened was, you know, say like iHeartRadio, which formerly probably had 40 to 50 radio stations, would go on in the years. Uh, in the decades to come to own close to a thousand to fifteen hundred uh, radio stations right all, all across uh, you know the, the US and so with that kind of like markets consolidation right where you have six six companies essentially uh, and sometimes they they differ sometimes it's people getting bought out and you know the you have the Comcast the Time Warners the the, the Disney's so on and so forth. Viacom. The Viacom. Yeah. yeah. CBS. Yeah. yeah so growing so much. Yeah. Um, and so with that, you have a corporate model for how you know music gets disseminated, uh, how news gets disseminated. So you have a hegemony, right? A, a, a particular type of model. What works here is going to work everywhere else, right? Kind of have a universal uh, model that they're using. And of course, there's all kinds of different ways of payola now that they use where, you know, if you're on a playlist now, it's a good, a, a very notable playlist. You're probably spending some big cash on that uh, to get your placement there. And then you couple that with the, the fairness doctrine that went out the window, I think in the 90s in the US, um, where the fairness doctrine was actually instituted by the FCC to ensure that if there was a controversial topic, right? And you'll remember this, man. If there's a controversial topic, right? There there would be the two opposing viewpoints that had to be there or else you would be fined or your show would be taken off the air. So you had to show the, the differing viewpoints. And so when that goes out the window with the, with the telecom deregulation, then you get just the echo chambers that we have now, the, the crazy places where people go and because of that, people, you know, have a limited amount of sounds that they can, or music, music that they can choose from as far as like the types of tastes and the variations and the lack of an eclectic, you know, selection of, of music. And then the same thing with news, right? You're, you're hearing one side from maybe Fox and then you're hearing another side from CNN and then you've got, you know, all the other, you know, sub smaller subsidiaries. So with that, we come to the music that we love, right? Not just, it's, it's world pop music, but it's hip hop. So we have a hegemony of sound, just one type of sound that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, colonized the, the planet. And it's, uh, it's got auto tune uh, ringing all through it. Um, so Mez, yeah, like how, what's it been like being a music fan? And I know that you, you're a music man. You had, you had a radio show in college, right? Like. What's it been like for a big music fan like you to consume or listen to music in this type of environment? Um, 
what has it been like i don't know i stopped listening around that time so <laughs> maybe that's why i didn't know about the i knew about the merger thing a bit later i think some of the labels were merging as well right like Ooh. in the early 2000s yeah but uh, i always thought that that kind of i mean the timeline from my from my point of view makes sense because i always thought the so-called golden era of hip-hop in the early 90s i mean there was a late 80s to early 90s what made the early to mid 90s different was that every single person sounded different mm-hmm. you know it wasn't just what that they were from the same area or from a different area even if they were from the same area they sounded different right. and i feel that was when hip you know it's just like hip-hop is come kind of like a, a baby that's growing up mm-hmm. i remember in 99 there was like a big celebration you know 25th year uh of, of hip-hop that's when i started to like think of hip-hop as like a, a child that's growing mm. and undergoing all kinds of changes changes and evolution yeah and i think it, was, it came of age in the early 90s in if you see it through its relationship to the business and uh, how it's marketed and how it's produced and all the you know the ars a and r stuff you know the, the actual this, this, um, executive decision making of what gets put on and what doesn't in the early 90s, it was still, still, still so relatively new, but it was also beginning to be taken seriously as a, as a marketable, uh, viable product of music. People almost, you know, could you see them like, you know, it's like, what's that gift from the office where everybody leaves, where uh, Michael Scott leaves his office room saying, oh my God, it's happening, it's happening. You know, <laughs> so everybody just clapping, right, right. clapping their hands, let's go, let's go, let's go. No time to waste. There's money to be made here, right? <laughs> and I feel like in the early 90s, they signed everybody. I, a lot of labels did not know what they had. And, and all they knew was what the other label had. Yeah. And they wanted that. Mm-hmm. And because they didn't have a particular idea of uh, the music, they didn't know what, how it worked. They didn't know what people liked. They didn't know what, you know, um, Dick and Jane. What's, what, what's the word the kids again from the third rock from the sun? I think is it, is it Tom, Dick and Harry? Tom, Dick and Harry? And and what was the sister's name? Because <laughs> oh, she's very important. Uh, the white, fourteen-year-old yeah. suburban girl is very important in uh, in who actually buys, you know, who actually, you know, the the the, the money part of hip hop. Right. Why a certain gangster rapper becomes really popular is because enough Janes actually bought it. You saw this later in the in the Up and Smoke tour. You know, right. You know, you know who eighty <laughs> percent of those those concerts were filled up with uh, with white young white women. Yeah, right. But Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is that the, the the reason we got all that selection, that eclectic kind of you know variety in the early '90s, is because the the machinery hadn't caught up to it yet. So a lot of people were getting signed. Right. That's why we also got a lot of one-hit wonders, you know, quote unquote, people who came and went. Oh. Now because of YouTube, you can all find them. Right. Like a like a random group like Bums, uh, who who are in the West Coast or the Nuns. Right. Or people like that, like or like in the like in, in the east. Like if you go by region, almost every single group had a little moment. Right. Um, even if their singles didn't make, even if their albums didn't go gold or anything, maybe a single went gold, or mm-hmm. they had a they had like a regional kind of standing. And then around the mid to late '90s, everything kind of consolidated. People realized, okay, this is what we're gonna sell, and this is what we're not gonna sell. Right. And that's it. And then, and then things started to kind of, you know, the, the they steadied the ship a little bit. So it makes sense that in 96, what you were saying, there were like these larger, bigger moves towards consolidation. And uh, by the early 2000s, really by the late 90s, mm. that's when the first complaints started to come in, right? Yeah. 
our generation where you're like wait why is everything about this and that and then i think uh, it, it peaked when nelly did the card the credit card swipe oh, <laughs> but what i would say though one thing you did say is before the move to atlanta yeah the, there was a cultural move to atlanta as it was in sound everybody wanted to sound like a new york rapper before that right right yeah. right right yeah, yeah yeah i mean that was the case over here in Toronto, I, I was I was going against the grain, being a fan of, of West Coast music, right? Um, you know, I wanted to be different, so I was I was listening and I was listening to Ice Cube, I was listening to to all the the, the other kinds of West Coast artists out there, the Snoop Dogs, the Dre's, the you know all the commercial gangster rap stuff. But yeah, like the East Coast was prominent. Everybody wanted to sound like like you know people in my neighborhood. They were rapping like Wu Tang, you know, they looked like the Wu Tang. Yeah. That was. That was the consensus that if you were going to be authentic in hip hop, if you're going to be authentic, then you you had to follow the model from New York, right? And I think that it, even with the West Coast dominance, commercial dominance of the '90s, right, when it's really at its peak and people are making music videos for a million dollars, like with you know that cost a million dollars, um, it's truly like when they make the pivot to Atlanta, right? That East Coast bias and the type of the type of sound that people want, that that wasn't a model anymore. I mean, wasn't Puffy just like well Diddy or I don't know. Is he calling himself something else now? I don't know. Anyway, so like when when he when he Ciroc. uh late yeah Ciroc. <laughs> he was on the radio lately and he's like, "Yo, like we we're supposed to dictate culture from New York. Why are we sounding like everybody else? Like this is weak, right?" But like that shift had already happened, right? With with the face even in the beginning with like when when Babyface and L.A. Reid go to Atlanta when they choose Atlanta to be the the the, the place that they're gonna build the face records, right? With TLC and and all of that and then you get Criss Cross and Jermaine Dupri um uh you get Outkast from uh LaFace right that was like the first beginnings of like a real shift shift and you know where the focus of black music was going to be in the U.S. right but yeah like it was there was such a, a New York bias a, a New York the New York yeah either way it's the way the machine thinks is gonna if, if it thinks that way if it's just if it's still the same machine then it's gonna run the same so before everything was New York centric, then everything became Atlanta centric because it, it tries to keep keep hold of it. You know, it doesn't want it to uh, overflow. They don't want to let, you know, lose control over actually what actually makes. It's, it's almost like quality control, you know? Yeah. Something, if something works for you, it's coming down the conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. And you, all you have to do is just check if it looks like this, the thing that came before it. Right. If something, if too many different things start coming down, it's almost like that that old Charlie Chaplin movie where he loses control of the, 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 uh, what do you call it? The assembly line, you know, like, Oh my goodness, yeah. things are coming too fast. And I, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with that. So you want to make sure you know what it is that you're selling. So you, you obviously create a, a blockage at the origin uh, point. So, right. yeah, I don't think it's, uh, uh, so that's beside the point for me, what Puff Daddy says about New York or the South. Yeah. I, we used to do the same thing when we were younger, like, uh, all these southern rappers they're not lyrical they don't sound like this they don't sound like that da, 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 da. but the point is whether it's new york or atlanta it shouldn't just be for one place and um and and then second second to that globally it was happening at the same time everyone in europe for each country that was starting to produce like their first rappers their local rappers yeah either they rapped in english and if they did <laughs> they sounded like the new york rappers right or they, if they did rap in their own uh, language, it was very uh, kind of New York inspired style, stylistically. That it took a long time for Europe, European countries, or other countries to find their own kind of uh, 
you know, to, to, to mesh what they, what makes them distinct with the quote-unquote art form or, or the form of rap. And um, yeah, it was happening everywhere. So, you know, whatever gets exported first, people latch onto first and they copy until slowly you kind of create your own regional sound. And uh, yeah, but, and again, it's cyclical. The machinery catches up and there is a little bit of a dearth, you know, like a choke point where nothing new comes out. Right. No, that's real. That's real. I think what's interesting too is um, you can always tell the origin of something by the amount of diversity and variation of that thing, right? With, you know, when we're talking about rap, you can tell that its origin is in New York City because if you look at New York City rap from like the Tila Rock days, right? Where It's Yours comes out and these guys are using like the 808s and they're not using like a, a, a backing band, a funk backing band to, you know, like Curtis Blow and, you know, the Sugar Hill, Hill Gang and all of them. and. You know, they're using 808s and you're not using standard bass lines and all of that kind of stuff. So you you have that there and then you have the fast rap, right, of LL Cool J, Big Daddy Kane there. Then you have like all, you know, the lover rap. The, you had all these kind of variations, right, Kid and Play. Like you had like people who were doing kind of like gangster stuff, people who were doing like real party stuff, people who were doing conscious rap, people who were doing all like, so you can see that the, the home of hip hop is New York City. So all these variations of hip hop that we see right now, right? Or that we've seen in the nineties, all kind of like really do start in New York City and then they go elsewhere and then they kind of take that style and they, they make it into something else, right? Like what, what, what did Bone Thug say? Like I've heard a, a, a different types of uh, accounts of this, but you know, somebody somebody will say, "Oh, I heard MC Ren flip a rhyme," or "I heard Big Daddy Kane do something," and then I just did that for the whole track. He did it for two bars, and I did it for sixty-four bars. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then, and then they adapt that, and then they turn that into told like into something totally different, right? Um, because that became theirs, and then they totally did something unique with it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So you could say it is near like. There's all these other regional influences because it's, it's whatever you have already and what you bring to the thing you just heard over the over the radio. Even in New York's case, you could argue that uh, there's many confluences because New York is New York. So you had a Caribbean, you know, presence there, like Cool Herc. He was bringing the like what the part the kind of parties that he was throwing were Caribbean inspired by. I think he is from the Caribbean, isn't he? Is he from the West Indies? Yeah, he's Jamaican. Jake Kuhlherk, yeah, so um, signifying, toasting, like if you, if you were to peep outside of the genre, the, 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 you know, the consumption, the, the product, you know, because you think of genre sometimes, we think of it as like, you know, unproblematically just a musical thing, category, mm-hmm. whereas actually it is a way for, for the, the company to sell its wares <laughs> so that it can properly label them, you know? So if you looked outside of it, outside of the capitalist structure you could you know extend it all the way back throughout history of african-american music and um, see that there is there was a move from the south to the north first and uh, you've you read trisha rose's book right yeah so yeah there's a lot of like geographical sociological and then musical stuff that happens and and, and class very important class right and then the nature of uh, new york city oh and this is where all the the anti-semitism i can get uh, thrown in Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people who live next to each other um, where all this stuff is happening at the same time. So a lot of the 80s labels that become popular, like Tommy Boy and whatever, right. 
they they get started in co- college dorm rooms by white kids. Right, right, right. Just because those white kids happen to be Jewish, or a lot of them happen to be Jewish. Yeah. I think that starts the narrative of, oh, there is a showrunner of this ethnicity and a showstopper, shall we say, of this ethnicity. Right, 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 right. right. And, 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 they, and it kind of goes hand in hand unchecked. and But then there are all this... Un, I think people should just talk about it openly. Yeah. And then before you know it, it becomes like this, uh, this, uh, this friction that was never addressed. So it always pops out as uh, anti-Semitism or anti-Black racism. So, but anyways, all this stuff kind of has a hit prehistory. And uh, what Bone do in the Midwest, they take from there. But they also, I mean, Crazy Bone, he he does Rega Muffin style kind of flows as well. Tretch does the same thing. It's like it's weird. It's what a lot of people mistake New York African Americans to be is just like black, regular black. Right. Because right, right. they do that in America a lot, right? Yeah. So and so is this. So and so is that. So and so is just regular black. Whereas the truth of it is, a lot, a lot of these people are just as much Caribbean. Yeah, Caribbean immigrants like they are in London or in Birmingham or in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. New York is more more so like that than any other city in, in the U.S., right? With a, a big Jamaican community, Trinidadian community, right? Guyanese community. Isn't Buster Rhymes from the Caribbean? He's, yeah, he's Jamaican. So doesn't that give you something like, like doesn't that open a whole new yeah. part of your brain up for why Buster Rhymes sounded the way he does? 100%. I mean, even in Toronto with like Cardinal Official and like artists like him, right? The, the Jamaican influence. And Joey Badass today. Yeah. He made a whole song dedicated to his uh, Caribbean background. Oh, I forget what the song called. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So, but, so it's like over here, for example, a lot of people think of black American music as just that black American. Right. Whereas over here, they like to, you know, be specific with it. Such and such is from, uh, from the Bahamas, such and such is from St. Lucia, such, such and such from Caribbean, da 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 da, da. You know, it's, there's no such thing as just black here. Uh, I mean, amongst themselves, right? Uh, that kind of always gets conferred to American, you know, American shores. Uh, um, so yeah, there's, there's people, migrations that go upwards first, and then things happen. <laughs> culture happens and then a businessman arrives and then things move upwards vertical mm-hmm. then and then deals are struck presidents sign papers and like you said it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning right right, right. yeah because with the, with the telecom act with all of these different um developments happening developments happening in, in the hip-hop industry right it, it happens it evolves coterminously with the different types of policy changes that we see in government and I think that that's fascinating. That's interesting. Of course, it's a, a, a deep neoliberal turn from the 70s. Hip hop itself is born within the neoliberal horizon of the 1970s of Gerald Ford saying, New York can basically go to hell, right? Like, we're not going to fund you, right? A city that went bankrupt in the 70s, right? That had nothing. Yeah. That was that was, that was was the financial center of the world. And then all of a sudden, because of the different developments of capital in the post-industrial moment uh a lot of the manufacturing that was based in new york city and around new york city with whether garment factories or whatever they relocate to the caribbean basin or they relocate to east asian post-colonial states and all of a sudden now you have new york that was kind of like blue collar and based on uh, a middle class or just reared by a middle class all of a sudden that middle class disappears and then whoever's left of that middle class goes to the suburbs and then what you have is a city kind of hollowed out teeter-tottering and the neoliberal in- inventions of high finance come to revive the city right and it, and, it, and it's the epicenter for the world and hip-hop grows up in this right this entrepreneurial market-driven 
economy. Do you know what I mean? And so hip hop is like, it's born at this time. So it makes sense that it would evolve with the neoliberal policies coming, right? Like they, they, they're coterminous with each other. They're, they're happening side by side, they're twins. So, so hip hop is, is, is not a, a battle against neoliberalism. It's born of it. You know what I'm saying? It's, that's a clear distinction yeah. that needs to be made because it, if it's coming up in this horizon in New York City, where it's, it's just on its death throes, you know, Jane Jacobs talks about the, the life and death of great American cities and New York City in the 70s was there, right there, right? You watch movies like The Warriors or whatever, you know, we'll paint a picture of the type of city it was. Even coming to America. Right. Like that's what the most interesting part of coming to America was the immigrant who comes with, with some kind of plenitude in his bag. Mm. <laughs> And then arrives in this, uh, this you know, this freaking hellhole. Right. But, but he also b- believes, you know, wow, America's so cool, I made it. <laughs> you know, like that. That's the that, that was the, the the comedy of uh, Eddie looking out the window saying, you know, good morning, America. <laughs> uh, this country is so free, yeah. you can throw garbage on the ground freely. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and his dream is to work at McDonald's and stuff like that. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, what was I gonna say? Yeah, yeah. The and then in that hollowed out situation, you get you, you know, I, what I liked about it, going backwards, was always the how hip hop was really an accident. Everything you just described leads people like you know Marley Marl and all these you know older DJs and producers to who had vocational training because. A lot of them didn't finish school and stuff like that. They had to, you know, learn a trade kind of skill. Yeah. That got them, you know, like fixing TVs and things like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of them. That's how they, you know, figured uh, figured out how to work some of these old Japanese toys, these, these little music boxes and stuff like that, and you know, turned them inside out and figured something else out. Like like the like the whole story of Marley Miles finding out that he could sample not just um, one part of the music, the song, but uh, the whole different part of the song was an accident. He didn't know he could do it. Wow. And then when he did it, he wow. said, this changes, ev- this, this changes everything. Wow. You know? Mm-hmm. And um, so that that's like the romantic part of it for me, which gets lost with the Manny Freshers and Swiss Beats in the late 90s. <laughs> um, right. But that but it also goes back and forth, right? I always ask you this, I ask a lot of people this about the difference between the art and the craft. Like the people who invent instruments, yeah, constantly, and the people who play them and manipulate them in ways that the uh, inventor didn't maybe uh, intend. Right. So there's like a constant back and forth. So once in the '80s you have these uh, NPCs and things like that. Mm-hmm. You now you have investment on the other part of the side of the world, where engineers who have absolutely nothing to do with the, the hellscape you just described for '70s New York. Right who then produce a whole new product that goes down the that's now available for purchase and then goes back and forth so by the time Swiss Beats makes his music he's sample free because he's got a an electric thing that has all is pre-sampled you know every single sound he could think of is already there so he doesn't have to um, work off of some kind of existing right 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 black kind of uh, what do you call it um, re- reserve of, of music you know but, which was also the part that the, the romantic part of me for me sampling was always like a yeah. call back with with your own past as opposed to some futurism that this new japanese 
product allowed you to, uh, mm. you know, traipse into or something, or or even brand yourself as like I'm I'm making music from the future type thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, like the Timberlands. So yeah, that's interesting. No, that's that's a fascinating point because like what Hank Shockley and the Bomb Squad are able to do with Public Enemy and samples. Like, obviously, you can't do that now just because the record industry is run by accountants and lawyers who would never let you sample <laughs> the way that you sample and in, in, in the way that they sample and not have to pay uh you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. It's weird, right? From their, from their rational point of view would be like, you don't need to anymore. Why would you do that to yourself? You know, you have a box that has free, you know, pre with preloaded sounds. Like if there's a bird that uh, just got discovered yesterday in Australia, we have the sound that the bird makes in this machine. You don't need to sample James Brown. <laughs> That's right, how they right, would look right. at it. It's paying homage and it's, it's, it's understanding the Gadamerian idea that we are all echoes of the past, right? So when you sample or when you do the kinds of artist development that requires you to listen to, you know, how they did it back in the day, whether it's James Brown or John Coltrane, even if you're not a jazz musician, but you, you listen to what Coltrane was doing on Giant Steps or, you know, Love Supreme, and it just shows you what where art can go, what, what you can do with your imagination, right? It, it expands your horizon because every time you reach back to the past and you do an interpretation of it or a reinterpretation of it in your music, it becomes new. Not only what you're doing, but also how we view the past and that music, right? You're shaping and shifting what a worldview is. That's why I, I love it. Like the sample, like I wish I could sample all the time. Like, like the music that you're hearing in this podcast, like in the beginning and the end, like it's sample free, but not because I want that to be sample free. It's because it's, it's, it's not economically viable for me to do it, right? Like I want to sample all kinds of music, but just can't do it in, 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 this, uh, in, this, in this climate. There's also like artist autonomy and freedom, like part of it too, because the older like artists who are being sampled didn't have that protection right. afforded to them, you know, and only the, the, the companies only stepped in if, if they thought they were losing money. Whereas now moving forward, you know, we're more individuated, more to, you know, automated, autonomous individuals who are more, even more private and even <laughs> more, you know, um, precious about our, our ownership, mm -hmm. our possessions. So we pay IP, um, what are they even? Those, those, those intellectual property, you know, hunting lawyers and stuff like that. You know, the ones who go around collecting money for you. So we hire them. Yeah. No, they run, they run the game. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you hire them and they collect money for you. So it's even more of a individuated space. So obviously nobody's going to sample now because you've earned the, uh, the standing privilege money. I, I mean, precious for yeah. you, obviously. But um, who, you know, who, to protect your to your music. I don't think in the 60s and 70s, African-American musicians were having that kind of... Uh, first of all, they didn't even own a lot no, of their music. No. And, and you know what's crazy? There's so much sampling now that's happening, especially with drill music, right? And, and I wonder and I think to myself, what's the logic behind this? There's a lot of money, right? And then I did some investigating, right? So what's happening is the publishing company will hire a bunch of writers and they bought this song from Bob Marley or Curtis Mayfield or Eric Clapton. And they're like, you know, we want more streams for this song and we want this song to be featured on more commercials. So what we need to do is for you to sample this song, reference it and put it out there in the zeitgeist, put it out there on Spotify, put it out there on Apple Music and get people to get redirected back to that song. Right. And so there's this cycle. This is called the financialization of the music industry. Right. And so when I heard uh, 
I seen Babyface was Babyface is one of my favorite of all times. I love him, man. But so they have like writers, songwriters, boot camps, and all of that with these big publishing companies that run it, and you know they they give this formula, right? They like I forgot the the girl's the girl's name, but we'll we'll talk about. I'll remember who who she is. She's important, but um, like. If you see Babyface's, uh, he came out with an album recently, right? Called Girls Night Out. And on that, that album, he has a song featuring LMA. And that song samples Tevin Brown's classic, Can We Talk? Of course, uh, written and produced by Babyface. And I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. And, and then all of a sudden they have all of these uh, online, um, you know, Can We Talk uh, competitions and challenges and everything like that. And I'm like, oh, wow, the money going around like this. Okay. Because for the last like five, six, seven years, older music has been making more money and has been getting more spins. Go, go on Spotify right now, put in Queen, put in the Rolling Stones, put in the Beatles, see how much their monthly users are, and then go to somebody who's big now. Maybe it could be Justin Bieber or whoever, and your favorite pop artist, and see how much monthly listens they get. So you're saying it's not just some cultural cycle that you know every 20 years we go back to a like a moment in time and it becomes uh, popular again you're saying there's a there's a push towards it there's a push towards out. it i mean these big equity firms i mean didn't snoop purchase death row from a big big private equity firm i think it was blackrock or blackstone or whoever uh like these big equity firms are, are buying up the publishing right and so the money is kind of drying up now like people are getting uh, sick of old songs so that's kind of oh, they want to popularize it yeah and so they thought it was going to be a cash cow for a very long time but what they're seeing is they're getting diminishing returns on it because there was a cycle for it just like you said right they're trying to marketize it systematize it so that it can be a consistent revenue stream so let me ask you tiktok is a big thing for that right don't kids like dance to a song that just suddenly becomes popular again even though it's like 15 years old and then kids do like little tiktok videos and stuff is that included in that or because is tiktok like a short enough format where they are allowed to play the music for, for that long mm. you can't play the whole song but you can play snip right so it's, it works for tiktok yeah for sure this this is this is a push towards it and 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 what i'm saying is that the returns are diminishing now right um as far as like the last couple of years the returns that these publishing companies have been getting off of the older big catalogs i mean like it's been all over the news right like bob dylan sells his catalog uh timberlake sells his catalog uh who else we heard some people in hip-hop like selling their their music right whether it's the dream or the producer of the dream or whoever and you're like yo how come they're selling all this music because they're getting they're getting offers that they can't refuse <laughs> you know what i mean that kind of money gets thrown at you because it's it's the idea is like oh wow this is um, these songs will be around forever and we'll be able to continually get money in perpetuity, right? But if people people are sick of it. Now they need something else. They need to do something else. And they're looking towards other models. So that's interesting, like how sampling comes back, but it, it comes back in this weird way. It doesn't come back in the way that the RZA and, you know, the Bomb Squad and, and even... Yeah, this is more like, this is more like in like covering because in, in a sense, in essence, uh babyface covered his own song but with a with a new fresh artist giving her by the way ella may isn't she the one who basically I mean, the first time i saw her was this woman is channeling Aaliyah very hard <laughs> she <laughs> had that one? vibe yeah, yeah yeah she had that vibe that's just another weird thing i think weirdly and alia is really in with a lot of 14 15 year olds like i'm like but she died before you were born that romantic you know short-lived oh yeah the, the young pop or rock artist who passed too soon romanticize the lives of Tupac or Kurt Cobain or, or 
like even when, yeah even when we were kids though people were like romanticizing what's his name the the, the actor the james dean yeah they never they, we were never around for him but people yeah he would always refer to tupac as like the new james dean and uh, i'm like oh who was that Park river was a river, yeah, phoenix. river phoenix right 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 but yeah but then let's go take it back to you then what's music to you then mm. what do you think of music and uh the you know what you were talking about the the fast rap mm. and the and the repetition and um what is it to you yeah for me it's it starts with the one that starts with james brown but it really starts in africa of course uh first and foremost you know what i mean you know one of my favorite um malian guitarists ali farcature he said wow when i heard the american so, blues, so you're a planet asia huh? fan huh you said you subscribe to the planet asia <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> well I, i'm saying that for a specific distinct reason and um everything starts with the drum everything is percussive right so what made the blues interesting is that when you took um the Congo drums away from, you know, black Americans, what they did was they, they took the guitar and they essentially turned it into a drum, right? That's the guitar. That's when you're hearing Randy Johnson on his, on his, uh, on his guitar, you know, playing it a certain way. When you hear Chuck Berry, right? And, uh, you know, Johnny B. Good playing his guitar. And he says, I'm playing my guitar to the sound of, you know, the, the cars and the trains outside, right? He's like, he's playing it to the rhythm of the, the world around him, but it, it has, a, it's like a drum beat. When you hear that guitar sound, it's, like it's, it's, it's a drum, right? And so the fast rap and hip hop, how it comes from this type of lineage, right? Where these instruments turn into drums, percussive instruments, right? Like James Brown turned the electric guitar and the bass fully into percussive instruments. They were drums. Um, what happens with rap music and why I find it so interesting is that with the fast rap of not just Bone, Bone Thugs and Harmony, but the fast rap of the Twisters, of the of the of the um, the West Coast guys, the poets, the the oh, freestyle free, free free fellowship. fellowship. You got in the '80s, you got Heavy D, you got even LL, you got Big Daddy Kane, you got. You know, later on, of course, you got the Busters, you got all of Pharaoh, early, early Pharaoh. Yeah, it, it throws into the wind this idea that what I'm saying to you can change my material existence. I'm going to sound like a drum and that drum is going to sound like a war drum. And it's going to call out to somebody because it's not through narrative or the logos that I'm going to be able to change where I'm at. It's going to be something entirely else. And that's where the one James Brown's one turns into Bernie Worrell's zero right when he plays that noteless note on parliament funkadelic's flashlight song right the song that was actually you know just a quick cool tidbit um that was why people in concerts now raise up their lighters is because of flashlight you know what i mean cool just a little trivia put that out there what happens after speech right what happens after that can be when narrative um is disturbed to the point of all you can hear is a muffle of my sound, right? And that's what the, the music and then the voice itself turns into one big drum, right? And what's happening is, like, I mean, we, we you sent me the article, but this is known through, you know, musical sociology, musicology, all of that kind of stuff that the drum... Hey, by the way, I have to say I am no musicologist. And I don't, I'm not even a music theorist. I just do music, uh, do theory about music. I like the way you put that. Um, but the drum and the repetitive nature of the different types of polyrhythms that people would play in ceremony or ritual 
right? When we go back to to get Afrocentric on your ass, to get a little bit Oswald Bates, maybe. <laughs> um, so um, as I prognosticate to say the things that I defecate, uh, no, I'm playing. But um, like like, like in in ritual and ceremony, the drums are brought out um for the for the specific and sole reason of accessing transcendence. Um, in whatever form that may be, right? But when we're talking about commercial music or music that's been commercialized in a particular type of horizon where people are still struggling for their freedom, the ceremony and the ritual is not there. So the drums don't necessarily give you a transcendence. So what happens when you're locked into that zero point mode and everything you're creating is new and novel, but it's essentially telling the same story of your own freedom? You know what I'm saying? Like it's enough to get you maddening, and that's what I found in the fast rap. Yeah, hip. Because it's played out of context. There, there's like the drum devoid of its con, uh, yeah. devoid of its because ceremony. Coltrane, he tries to get to that point, and of course, if, if anybody knows about John Coltrane, he was a spiritualist. He was he was deeper than your average cat, to use uh, some jazz parlance. Um, what he was trying <laughs> to do with the music, he was trying to get to a transcendental point of understanding, and He's playing this European instrument, the saxophone, right? One night, and he's going ham on it. And it doesn't it doesn't do it. And he gets to the fast rap point. He throws the saxophone to the side and he just beats his chest because that's all it can do, right? Like I've every all the novelty I've tried, all the everything I've done hasn't changed anything. And the same keeps recurring over and over again, right? So you can find it in Coltrane, you can find it in Bone, you can find it everywhere. You can you can see it, and it's like, um, I mean, Luther Vandross does it, right? In a, a House Is Not a Home, when he when he does that famous sample that Kanye West used in his song Slow Jams, right? When he goes, Are you gonna be? Are you gonna be? Are you gonna be? It's, whoa! Are you, it's like that's ontological. Are you gonna be? Well, I think that's the lyric, but B is in there, right? And B. From a philosophical standpoint, that has to do with your existence. <laughs> okay, you just you just linked uh, Luther to uh, Heidegger. Well, yeah, 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 of course, that's that's mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's he's uh, what, what did Heidegger call being? He called it um, Dasein. Dasein. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Luther was singing Dasein, Dasein, Dasein. <laughs> his his interpretation of that Burt Bacharach song was just insane, right? But what he did to it, I mean, Luther was just Luther, but. When, when he goes to that point, he's like, there's nothing else can do it, but I'm just like, how you gonna be? How you gonna be? How you gonna be? Like, it's like, whoa. Like he's accessing the same thing as, as Coltrane. And he's saying that all of these novel twists are just expressions of the same type of unfreedom. So what people call exhaustion for them is a realization of something else. Cause that was, that's what, how people would have described that, right? At some point, a form exhausts yeah. itself. So there's only so much you can do, but repeat old old forms. Maybe there's more to it than, than just uh, exhaustion. There's like a, you you meet something, yeah. you see it, and then you I guess I, I don't know. I guess you yeah, I guess you revisit that every time because that's what what I guess what Bone would do because every time they did it. Yeah. I mean, people would know it as a style. Oh, that's how Bone do it. But I guess they keep going back to that same place, or they they are at yeah. that place. As a cold train was at that place. You, you're trying to access, like, when I say transcendence, you're trying to access wholeness. When when you're when you're trying to get on the other side of where the song and dance, the drum circle is supposed to take you, it's a rite of passage from one um, state of being into another state of being. And when 
when you're not able to travel and get to that other state of being through this rite of passage, through this ceremony, through song and dance, then it becomes a clown show. Then it becomes a circus. Then that, that, that's what we're dealing with, right? That's the funk. That's the funk. Mic drop. <laughs> How do you know you've transcended? Well, like I was saying, like, if it's a rite of passage, right? So I'm not talking about it completely from like a transcendental, spiritual, new age perspective. When you have a rite of passage, you go from one age set, right? As a maybe a, a young person, a young woman, a young man. You pass through this liminal corridor through the ceremony and whatever in, that ceremony entails. Uh, and then when you get to the other side of that, you become either an adult or become a priest, you become a warrior, right? There is a differentiation that happens through space and time, right? And you're accessing it. And so when that doesn't happen and you don't see a change in your state of being in those kinds of concrete material terms, that's why I was bringing up Ali Farcature, right? When you said, when I heard the Delta Blues, I was astounded and amazed. It was my music. It was our music without the stories without the timeline, without the journey. Do you know what I mean? Because when you listen to Ali Farcature, you get a sense of transcendence. You listen to that music and it is beautiful. It takes you from one place to the other place. And when you listen to hip hop and that loop is repeating and repeating and repeating, it's like it's trying to wake you up. It's trying to wake you up. And when you don't want to wake up and you want to stay in that zone, that's what we might have to call the zone of non-being, you know, as theorized by my main man, Franz Fanon, right? To give props to Ahmad Rashad again. <laughs> but you, you, you feel what I'm saying, though, Matt? Do you feel it? Uh, what you say? You'd have to say more. About the zone of non-being or like, like what else? No, are you saying there's a lack of that or if you, I mean, that's what I'm saying in the new world, right? That's why when narrative fails you, when narrative fails you, right? When the call and response fails you, right? The call and response that's so. What do you mean by fails you? Like what, what, what do you mean? By, what, would, what would constitute failure? When it doesn't ask, answer your question, when it doesn't bring forth a sense of an end to what you are trying to accomplish. Right, whether it's your freedom, whether it's dignity, but that would be the um, European other. Europe, European is goal oriented, and at least Western classical music, and it's about movement, it's about telos. So, when you are you saying the African is uh, banned from that journey, or is already not interested in the journey? Because what you what you're saying sounds like you're interested in arriving at a goal in a new world. I think in a new world, we're talking about new world music, right? And I think, I think there's that, that kind of being frozen or being, being stuck at the train station and the, the train is, is never coming, but they keep, you know, telling you that, you know, your ticket is going to get you on this train and, and, and it, and it's forever in advance and it's, you're forever waiting. I'm the one who yeah. waits, you know, you know? And so you're supposed to go from one point to the next point. Right? The music is supposed to take you from one point to the next point. It's supposed to help you on your journey. The music and why we rhyme is on purpose, right? It's a mnemonic tool for memorization. It's supposed to change. It's supposed to do other types of things. And so as a traveler in this life, as we all are travelers, the music is supposed to help us get from one point in life to the next point in life. 
but when it keeps you stuck in a mode in the loop then is that not a hellish scape to be in a zone of non-being right the music is i don't know i mean life to me I'm, i'm i'm completely in opposition to how you're describing it to me life is cyclical anyways you're gonna everything ends where you started and you just what you do is you hand it off to someone you share it with and then they get to start from the point you ended at and then they will end up ending somewhere else and that's that's why that's the article i sent you that had that old james yeah. sneed on repetition and, and cut thing is that it, it, it up opposes the old african form against a western form of you know a form of cyclicality repetition and, and rupture against western linear progression towards some kind of telos i was actually i was gonna send you this video actually um was it uh, george R. R. martin was on one of these talk shows i saw it earlier and they were talking about this this is a cross culture so it doesn't matter if it's literature if it's uh you know visual yeah film or whatever and he was talking about how you know i think the talk show host asked him about um why are we so dystopian now in the last 30 years every sci-fi fantasy seems to be about decline and fall uh whereas before they seem to be a bit more optimistic mm-hmm. apparently there was some article in the washington post about that and martin was saying about how yeah when i was 21 years old we just landed on the moon and i thought this is it this is the new before christ and ad you know this is year one from now on we just uh just keep on expanding after the moon we go to mars we'll Uh, set up a galactic empire blah, blah 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 and he said all of his contemporaries were thinking much in the same way hence star trek mm. and then some some point they they hit the choke point and things just started to go kind of inwards again and they were trying to figure out why that is like your form of goal oriented you know interpretation of culture is expansionist it assumes limitlessness like you know you can constantly arrive at a new place then you will constantly um blindly kind of tr- uh trample over the things you are already standing on whereas cyclicality is um in in tune with what is around it and even like you said we're going we might speak about habisha music yeah. it's the kuda dance you know <laughs> the, the 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 cut and the kuda dance when th- when the, the double beat happens then you stay in point in in place mm-hmm. and you enjoy you enjoy the fruits mm. you enjoy the, you share you, you enjoy what you share with your uh, with your fellow you know carousel riders no and um and then in some at some point in postmodernism these things combine right so r&b pop music right. becomes both so what i'm saying is that there's movement even if it's horizontal even if it's vertical well i'm saying there's movement even in the verticality of the circle right like it's it's the circle is both both vertical and horizontal so it has linear points to it so like i wasn't saying like you're going somewhere new i'm saying you're going somewhere through the rites of passage to a one state of being to another state of being that's already been chartered he's saying that what they're doing has already been charted come check me yo we can talk about this and exchange notes because you do you're doing some things that i've never seen anybody do and i think that you would be interested in what we have here as far as the tradition um so yeah like i, I didn't mean like a linear path towards just a techno rational view of what progress is towards the end of time and and all of that kind of stuff that, that's that's how a lot of 
you know what do you call it like the new black people like pharrell kanye whatever that's how they term a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. they distance themselves from this tradition and they wish that they could move linearly as those who uh who they deem you know are ahead of them so that's uh that's where that kind of you know you end up on that side on that techno futurist always thinking you can get somewhere yeah. when and 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 when and then you're blind to how people are getting there. You know, there's the, this cultural stuff is clashing at the same time as there's a colonial clash, material clash happening, and you know, all kinds of expropriation and exploitation and primitive accumulation and yeah. genocide, slavery, da 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 da, all the kind of stuff, right? So all that stuff needs to happen in order to propel forward. Right, right. This movement towards, uh, you know, this forward movement takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of fuel. You got to put coal in the fire, you know, and a lot of people who, who've been, uh, you know, in balance with certain things, like you were saying, like the thing is already chartered for them. They know, but the point is then the next generation doesn't know. Right. Right. So when you don't know, even if something is chartered for you, it's something new in each, uh, who know who's to say that in each uh, turnaround, you don't create something new anyway. So you find something new, then you, then, then you place along the carousel right for the next person to come in and pick it up but that's what i, I think that's kind of the point of, of pop music is probably that maybe we've come across something here hmm. the, the, in the article i sent yeah. you you can maybe post this article with the pod is uh, there is a point in which post because that's my old my, my thing what the most i learned from sneed is that for everything who says about african culture once postmodernism happens becomes world culture a white person can be you can be ludwig Göransson, you yeah. know <laughs> He doesn't need to be black or African to understand this in, in his being. Like he's, he, he understands this. It's, it's now postmodernism and globalization happening at the, around the time that it did. Everybody can take part in this now. Everybody doesn't just take part in it, but also is, is of it. And um, the, mix, the mixture of the, today, the modern days kind of pop song of thematic progression with the, you know rep- repetition and cut on one side um maybe that's the that's the universal we can get, uh, glean out of it or whatever maybe that's what it is no for sure for sure i think there's uni- universal principles to all different all, all kinds of different cultures that you know maybe get a little bit levy straussian on it uh with it well it's folk music westerners have folk music they do it's 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 not it's not i mean we go we go back to that andor um episode i mean even though they're supposed to be some kind of indigenous group the folk music is more closer to this african style than it is to the to the classical kind of european yeah, yeah, yeah. movement based one yeah. yeah and i think that that's a point um worth really investigating right and looking at it um but yeah like to get to get to your points like endless technological growth doesn't equate to cultural growth or cultural sophistication right those two things don't go together necessarily i think Asmodam Legese, the anthropologist, he 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 called it a technocultural fallacy, right? And so, yeah. like to to want that all the time, right? To, to want what like what we've gotten in the last four centuries or five centuries would, in a more sane world, probably take four to six millennia to accomplish. <laughs> yeah. Without all the things that happened, you know, happened, 
and so yeah that, that's an interesting thing man but yeah like you, you're right like the old becomes the new the new becomes the old every time you like i was saying earlier like when you interpret the past and when you interpret a new song it in a sense becomes new because your own spin on it when it came to your mind it became yours and then you you used it in a way that speaks to your lived reality right that, that's what basquiat would say right like once that idea comes in my mind it becomes mine and I can bend it towards the purpose that I am pursuing. Do you know what I mean? I mean, in a way, you just described Telos holds wholly, like in its own, in its whole way. Because what what changes is technology. What um what stays the same is the i you know the what you just called idea placement in someone's mind and becomes its your own. But you have now access to and take not a new technology that didn't exist. There's this constant relationship between the same and the yeah. new the, the same and the new the same and the new it just keeps moving forward that way and but yeah everything about the growth part is that's that's the virus you know that's even now new prime minister in the uk it's it's the i've, I've seen i don't know like seven prime ministers now since i've moved here and every single time the key word is the growth economic growth yeah. you know? and how to create it how to jump start the rocket you know how to figure out how many, how many lamps to the slaughter? That kind of thing. So, anyways, man, we covered a lot. I, I just lost my second earbud. <laughs> That's our cue to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, word 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 to James Sneed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wasn't wasn't Sneed uh, the name in one of the skits in Dr. Dre's The Chronic? The the, the Why new you gotta one? do that, man? James Sneed, right? Why you gotta get foul? That was his name, that was though, a right? bad skit. <laughs> that was a bad skit. <laughs> Well, but but the name just stayed with me. I'm like, yeah. wait, did they actually did they name this this dude after uh, after one of our pr- premier you know cultural fears? It was James wrong in every kind of way. It was like I think that was a porn star. I hope I hope they weren't doing that on purpose. But that's yeah, that's gangster rap for you. We don't care, eh? Devil may care. <laughs> exactly. Yo, man, we need antitrust regulation. That's the thing that you need to get out of this podcast. We need antitrust regulation to. Well, to loosen the grip, to get these big corporations, the Time Warners, to loosen up the grip and have to sell off a lot of their media products. What would ESPN be like without Disney? Aaron, you might you might wait four to six millennia until they loosen any grip on you. Well, no, I, I was saying that because then maybe we won't have like you know that skit that you're talking about with the, the Sneed dude. Uh, poison in the minds of- I, feel, I feel that if that was i mean that was probably it. if it is true then it's probably dr dre who probably had to hear a million times in the 80s that you know you are bastardizing music here's an uh, here's a renowned academic so-and-so you know who, who shares your color oh my god <laughs> That's crazy. and um and he probably and he probably just used and he just probably just kept the name in his head and said I'll, I'll, I'll show you what i do with my with your renowned black academic <laughs> that would be crazy if that was the case and i would, I would honestly say wow like I, I just made the connection now man i didn't even think of it james sneed shit but uh, on another note though i learned in university that there's a gay porn star by the name of dread scott what yeah chew on hey, that right, yeah. man, that's 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 our cutest stuff fuck that shit all right <laughs> <laughs> Dred Scott is also one of my favorite, favorite rappers of all time. Had two albums in the early 90s. Please check it out. Yeah. His music is is 100% the soundtrack to this conversation. Hey, hey, Dred Scott. All right, big ups, big ups to the artist, Dred Scott. 
all right all right all right that was another episode of no gps the brothers there in the mess bringing it to you like nobody else can and we got mr matt the producer matt in the back much love big ups to you and much love to everybody out there we're gonna catch you on the flip side and uh check you out see you later